turn to Second uh, Kings in chapter 7 today. Cape Town is a very different uh, part of the world, I guess, in some senses, very similar in many others. And uh, we find that many of the problems that we have here in Australia, I guess, are amplified over in Cape Town. Uh, it's not that the problems are so terribly different, but rather that the scope of them is considerably larger. And uh, what we do find is there seems to be a general disregard for law and so on, and particularly traffic laws. It's actually almost a pleasure driving back in Adelaide, believe it or not. You don't have to worry about who's going to cut in front of you. Uh, one of the big menaces over there are minibus taxis. They have Hiaces and they have Nissan E20s and the likes, and they load them to the gills, literally. You see faces pressed against the glass <laughs> as these things drive down the road. I don't know, I think people inside praying as they're driving down the road. But uh, they are really quite a menace, and uh, they, uh, I guess, exemplify the the uh, regard for law that sort of starts with small things, doesn't it? And then it amplifies from there. They can't control the small things. They've got less chance of controlling the big problems. There's just a little story that I heard the other day about um, uh, these guys that uh, turned up at the pearly gates on their way to heaven, or what they thought was on their way to heaven, and uh, one of them was uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. You might have heard of him. Uh, over in Cape Town, we say, I used to be an Anglican before I put two and two together. But he turned up, and uh, he was expecting to be ushered right in in the best seats. And uh, St. Peter stood at the gate, and he's fumbling through the book, and he says, well, look, you'll just have to wait for a moment. I can't seem to find you here. And a little while later, there was the Pope turned up, and he also expected to be taken straight through into a position of prominence. And once again, Peter couldn't find his name straight away, and he, he had to sit down and just wait his turn. And then there was one of these taxi drivers that I just mentioned turned up. And uh, Peter recognized him and ushered him straight into the best places. And the Pope and uh, Desmond Tutu were quite outraged. How could this be? This guy's just a lowly taxi driver. Peter looked at him and he said, don't worry. He said, that man has put the fear of God into more people than you ever did. <laughs> Second Kings in chapter 7. We see here a situation in the time of the people of Israel, the land of Samaria, when they were besieged by the Syrian army. And I guess many people are familiar with this particular story. I'm not going to dwell on any particular point for any length of time, but let's just go through Second Kings in chapter 7. It says here in verse 1, then Elisha, who was obviously the prophet in the land at the time, said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Now these things weren't available at this particular time. The people, if you read the previous chapter, had taken to cannibalism and eating dove's dung and all sorts of horrible things because the siege had been on for some time and there was no food in the city. So this sort of prophecy was quite incredible. Uh, first of all, the price, I would believe, was quite cheap. Secondly, it just wasn't available. Even if you had money, no matter what the price, you couldn't buy it because it didn't exist. And so we see here there was a lord, in verse 2, on whose hand the king leaned. He answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Now obviously he was scoffing. He didn't believe for one moment that God was going to make windows in heaven. He was making fun of Elisha and his prediction. And Elisha says to him, Behold, shalt, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat 
thereof. And so the Lord said, well, uh, sorry, Elisha said, well, God is going to do what he's going to do. But obviously, if you're not believing, you're not going to see it. Now, that's a point that we might come back to a bit later on. But obviously, in our own walk in the Lord, you know, God is going to do what God is going to do. It's up to us whether we tune into that or not. And uh, maybe after we've been in the Lord for a while, we sit back and we see people who are enjoying the blessing of God in their lives. And we sort of wonder, you know, how can that be? God is doing what God is going to do. It's up to us to motivate ourselves and to get tuned in to what is happening and to be part of God's blessing. In verse 3, which is what I really want to get to, it says that there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. They were outside of the city. You would realize, of course, that leprous men were outcasts. They had to sit outside of the city while everybody else was inside. And it says, they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we still uh, sit still here, we shall die also. Now therefore come, and let us fall under the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, we shall but die. These guys figured that they were dead anyway. They just hadn't dug the place for them yet. They were dead in their socks wherever they went. They sat there outside the gate. They were going to die. Went into the city. They were going to die. Let's take our chances and go and see the enemy. And just maybe, maybe they'll make us prisoners of war. What a blessing that would be to be a prisoner of war. At least we shall live. But if they kill us, well, we're only going to die anyway. So these guys went up. In verse 5, rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. So here we have the city surrounded by an empty camp. And so these guys found something that they didn't expect. In verse 6 it says, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a, ho- a noise of chariots and the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. And wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And so they'd taken off out into the desert, wherever they'd gone. They'd left absolutely everything behind. So here's the whole city thinking they're surrounded by an enemy when in fact it was just an empty camp. And so these leprous men came along and they stumbled across this plenty. Now there's a lot of analogies in this particular story, a lot of types that we might take hold of this afternoon. And maybe the first one is just to look at these leprous men. We know that that leprosy, I guess, is... uh, kind of representative of the sin disease which separates mankind from God, isn't it? It's that which makes us all outcasts in the face of God. And, and we cannot stand before him. We're like these guys. We're, we're cast outside of the camp. The Bible tells us in the New Testament in particular that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so he can't accept any of us as we stand at this present moment or as we were in the world, let's say. And so these guys represent, I guess, in a sense, these four leprous men, they represent the whole of mankind, don't they? What we have, of course, is a a world that's under siege. Not just a city, but the whole world which is under siege from the enemy. And he does pretty much as he pleases out there. People don't have any defense. And we've got to the point where we've pretty much been starved out of the blessing of God. There's no obvious blessing out there that you can see where God is moving You know, in uh, in small pockets like this here this afternoon, praise the Lord, 
We've just heard of the testimonies. We've seen of some of the things that God is doing for his, uh, for his people. But that's pretty much the uh, odd case out, isn't it? Out there in the world, it's a pretty barren and a desolate place. It's, it's under siege from the devil and from his cohorts. And I guess what we have here is four guys who were curious enough to get up off their, off their seats where they were, where they were condemned to die, and just do a little investigation for themselves. They were looking for some answers. Praise the Lord, I guess most of us sitting here this afternoon were looking for answers at one time or another in our lives. We came to that point where we realized that we were dead as we stayed where we were at that particular time, and there's certainly nothing to be found out there in the world. So maybe let's just try this one other alternative. Maybe somebody came to us, a small testimony, just something which sparked our interest, you know, kindled that little glow inside of us and made us realize that maybe there was something to be had. I remember the first meeting that I ever went along to. Nobody actually witnessed to me. I didn't want to be there because it was church and I'd gotten to the age where I could rebel against church. But on this particular occasion, against my better judgment, I found myself in a revival meeting. And to this day, I remember the testimonies, the guys that stood up at that particular meeting and they talked about the power of God. One of those was our brother Ian Sanderman. And he talked about how that uh, up in the Northern Territory he'd been stung by a sea wasp. He talked about the scars that were still evident across his forearm at that particular time. That sparked my interest. Suddenly I heard of somebody who had some contact with this guy. So I became curious, and a few weeks later I was baptized and received the Holy Spirit myself. But it just took that testimony, that, that little something, to strike a light inside of me, to spark my interest. And I guess, for whatever reason, these guys got up out of their seats and they went out into the world, out to the camp of the enemy, and they found that the enemy had been defeated. And I guess that's what we all found when we came to the Lord and we were filled with the Holy Spirit. We found that we weren't in bondage at all. We thought we were. The problem was in our mind. But the enemy had been vanquished long ago. Instead of finding the camp of the enemy, we found the spoil, didn't we? We found the best of everything that God has prepared for those who love him. And so, praise the Lord, we were no longer in bondage to the world and to its elements and to all of the things that used to afflict us, suddenly we found that there was life and that more abundantly. And that's what these guys found out here in the camp of the Syrians. Going a little bit further, <clears throat> it says in uh, verse 8, when the lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. You could kind of Imagine these guys like children, couldn't you? All these trinkets and toys and baubles. And they just found it there and go in and take this lot and run away and hide it somewhere, come back and find some more and run away and hide it somewhere, having a fantastic time. But then in verse 9, they said one to another, We do not well. This day is a day of good tiding, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. And so they realized they couldn't keep this to themselves. This was something far greater than they'd ever imagined. This was something far, far bigger than they themselves, something bigger than they could understand. And they realized that it wasn't just theirs to keep to themselves. They had to go back to the king's household. Those who still thought they were in captivity. 
but those who were also set free. And I guess that describes us here today, doesn't it? We've found a wonderful treasure in the Lord, a wonderful uh, a prize beyond our wildest dreams, absolutely everything that we need in this life, peace and joy and prosperity and health, all of those things that we were really looking for out there in the world, but we've, we've found it in abundance now. But of course, we do not well if we keep it to ourselves. We have a duty, we have an obligation now to go back and tell those who are also of the king's household but who still think that they're in captivity back there in the world. We've got to go back to them and tell them what we have found and that they can come and be partaker of it as well. Praise the Lord. Somebody did that for us, didn't they? Somebody who had found this wonderful treasure, this wonderful prize, came to us and said, look, you can have some of this too. There's something here that you haven't found before, something that you haven't come across in all of your religious upbringing or whatever it may be. And so we have an obligation. We were talking in Elizabeth last week about uh, the, the duty of a watchman last Sunday, talking about how that God has given us a calling to sound the alarm, to go out there and to tell people. Maybe we'll just turn very quickly to that. Keep your finger there in Second Kings. But turn over to Ezekiel. I wasn't actually going to turn there today. Ezekiel in chapter 33. Very quickly it says, and again in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring a sword upon the land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts, and set him for their watchman, if when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet, and takes not the warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, he took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. See thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, if thou shalt hear the word of my mouth, and warn them from me. And so what we see here, of course, is our calling, isn't it? Go you into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, but there's an obligation. We've got to open our mouth. We've got to tell them what we have found in the Lord. Just like these leprous men back here in chapter 7, they realize that if they wait until the morning light, I guess that's kind of when the day star dawns, when Jesus Christ bursts through the clouds. Here we are at the darkest hour, if you like, here in this world. We're waiting for the dawn to break for Jesus Christ to return. And if we should tarry until that time and not do anything with what the Lord has given us, we're kind of like those guys who were given the talents, weren't they? Some was given five, another one three, another one one. Those who had five and three went out there and they used their talents. They made an increase. The guy who had one, he had it. He had the one talent. But he took it and he hid it. He didn't use it. So that when God came again, when the goodman came again, all he had was the one talent that had been given to him in the beginning. If we should tarry until the morning light, we do not well. So let us use what the Lord has given us and let's publish it abroad. 
Let's go back out there to those who still think that they're in captivity, but they're not. The victory is already won. They've just got to avail themselves of it. Jesus Christ has triumphed. He's risen from the dead. And all we have to do is tell them what they can have. It's there waiting for them. So they think they're surrounded by the enemy. But in fact, they're not. The enemy is vanquished. And what we have found is the greatest news that you could ever imagine. So we see back in Second uh, Kings in chapter 7, where they went back in verse 10, they came and called to the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters and told it to the king's house within. And it says in verse 12, The king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will show you now what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. But one of his servants answered and said, Take some, I pray thee, sorry, let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city, behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. And let us send and see. And they took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went out, sorry, they went after them into Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels, which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, and the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. And so it came to pass that a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And so, exactly as Elisha had prophesied back there in the beginning, it came to pass. The circumstance wasn't quite windows in heaven, but nonetheless it was just as miraculous. And so the people went out, and they found exactly as these leprous men had described under them. And they went out and they spoiled the tents, and I guess it was kind of like Christmas come early for them. Not that they believed in Christmas, I don't think, but nonetheless, they found all of this bounty and all of this plenty waiting for them to come and partake of it. I guess what is interesting is the reaction, first of all, of the king's household when they heard about this plenty that was waiting for them. How many people do we speak to out there in the world, and they embrace the gospel with open arms. Very few. Almost none. Everybody's got questions. Everybody's uh, are trying to check it out and weigh it up. Very few that actually hear the word of God and come along and embrace it, as you might expect. You know, I guess when we first come to the Lord, we think, well, this is fantastic, and everybody must embrace this. Everybody wants to hear about it. Everybody will, will grasp hold of the blessing of God like I have. Go back and you tell your friends and your family, and what happens? They laugh at you. Or they tell you you've lost your marbles, or you've gone fanatical, or any amount of other criticisms that they level at us. But they don't realize they are belittling the promise of God. They're kind of like the king's household here with their stories, aren't they? I'll tell you what's happened. You know, there's a trap, there's a hook, something waiting to catch you out. I remember when we came to the Lord, my father was a bit like that. He was looking for the hook. He'd become very cynical of religion. He decided that it was all uh, make-believe and didn't particularly believe in God at that point in time. But he was desperate. Mum was very ill. So he came along looking for something for mum. 
And praise the Lord, we found that within a, a few days, mum was out of hospital and healed and set free. Uh, took a few weeks later, later before we actually got baptised. But all the time, dad was looking for the hook underneath. He sort of saw all the nice dressing on top. He thought, there's got to be something underneath to grab me. Now, there's got to be a trap here that I'm not expecting. I think many people are like that. It's all a bit too good to be true, isn't it? Praise the Lord, when we do make the efforts, and we go out there and we check for ourselves, we find that it's exactly as it's promised unto us. And so we find this wonderful treasure, we get out there, and we spoil the tents of the enemy, if you like. I want to go over to the New Testament. Let's see this. Second Corinthians chapter 4. We didn't finish the rest of the story. That Lord who uh, offered his hand to the king, whose hand the king leaned on, whether that means he was frail and he needed somebody to support him or he looked at this man as a wise man and somebody who would give counsel and so on, I don't know. But nonetheless, he was given charge of the gate. And as the people rushed out, they trod over the top of him and killed him as he tried to control the masses. You can imagine these starving people and the promise of food and plenty out there in the field, they weren't about to be controlled. And so they ran right over the top of him. I guess there's a warning there for us. Let us always uh, look towards the promise of God and the blessing of God. Even in our darkest hour, the hand of God is there. You know, sometimes we, we get uh, concerned because we think, well, you know, God is sort of leaving things pretty late, isn't he? You know, I've got a desperate situation in my life and uh, getting to the end of the tether here, you know, it seems like God leaves it to the last minute. What I can tell you is that God is never a minute too late, and all the people said. He's always there, right on time. So whether we think it's the absolute last minute or not, God is there, and his promise and his blessing will suffice. Second Corinthians, in chapter 4, just a couple of verses here. Verse 3, he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And so it is, if we hide this treasure which we have found put our light under a bushel okay it's all well and good for us but what about those who are still lost out there who still think that they're in captivity to the enemy it says in verse 4 in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them and so he's uh, He's blinded their minds, hasn't he? I guess the, the greatest problem that we find in Pentecost today, in, in uh, Christianity today, or whatever you want to call it, is, is of course the confusion element, isn't it? We were talking around to Pastor John's uh, uh, earlier in the week, and we were just talking about uh, the impact that the gospel had when we first came along. I remember when I first heard the word of God, it was, it was kind of unique. Never heard of anything like this, speaking in tongues, receiving the Holy Spirit. Was, was quite uh, radical in a sense. But I guess today when you talk to people, almost every man and his dog has heard about it, haven't they? Everybody's spoken to somebody or known something or seen something on the TV, the Pentecost and these crazy things that they do, you know, the, the way out beliefs that they have. Pretty much anything goes as long as you call it spiritual this. I guess you'd have spiritual murder. I don't know. Spiritual adultery. I don't know. But you name it spiritually, whatever you want to call it, dancing this in the spirit and slaying that in the spirit and so on, they'll do it. Everybody's heard about it. And I guess what they've done is pretty much to make Pentecost a stink, haven't they? They've given us a bad name and a bad reputation. And so now when we come along and we talk about 
the spoil which God has given unto us, his bounty and his blessing, we're kind of like the also rans, and you too. Nowhere is the impact that it had in my life when I first heard about the word of God was astounding. Today I guess we spend just about as much time disassociating ourselves from Pentecost because we don't believe in all of the excesses that they have run to. So the God of this world has blinded their minds. He's uh, he's put about all these counter stories to confuse the issue. I just want to look at, at one little example. Let's go back to Matthew. Chapter 27, verse 62. It says, Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. So they'd obviously picked up something from what Jesus had spoken unto them. They said, Command therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, and so the last error shall be worse than the first. So they didn't really believe that he was going to rise again, but they thought, well, now let's take a few sort of safety precautions, if you like, so that these rumours can't abound and get out of hand. So it says in verse 65, Pilate said unto them, you have your watch, Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went, made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting the watch. Then if we just go, we'll skip over a few verses in chapter 28. Of course, we know that there was the the great earthquake. We know that uh, the, the stone was rolled away. The angels descended down. We see that those people who were there to guard, they uh, uh, saw these things happen. Some of them fainted and were for as dead men, it says there in verse 4. And uh, we go over to verse 11, it says, Now when they were going, this is the disciples going, behold, some of the watch, this is these guys that Pilate had given unto them, they were sent uh, to, to keep uh, the sepulchre sure. They came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave them large money under the soldiers, saying, Say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. How can you believe that? These guys had actually seen it happen. You know, we... We weren't physically there. We didn't actually see this happen. These guys saw the angels come down. They saw the stone roll away. The dead rise again. They took the money and they perverted the story, didn't they? They went back and they told the people, no, the disciples came and they stole the body away. didn't really rise from the dead at all. To this day, that saying is commonly reported. You know, maybe you think, well, that's just a story. Over in Cape Town, we've got a lot of Muslim people. They have some strange beliefs indeed. One of them, just one of them, is that, well, they believe Jesus Christ is still alive for a start. Take that, if you will. They believe that uh, uh, Muhammad died and he's buried in Mecca and they know where his tomb is. But they believe that Jesus Christ is still alive. Now, they, they sort of qualify that, if you like, by saying, well, we don't believe he actually died. Well, that in itself is pretty amazing because we're talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago now. But they say, no, Jesus never died, 
Simon the Cyrene was crucified in his place and Jesus escaped. And that saying is commonly reported amongst them to this very day. They believe it. They also believe that at the end of the age, Jesus Christ is going to come back and lay down in the grave and Muhammad will rise again. I say to them, well, who would you rather believe? The one who's dead and buried or the one who's still alive? And all the people said, the one who's still alive, obviously. There's no question, is there? But there you go. That's how the facts can be distorted to suit the, uh, the occasion, to suit the story. And so we see here confusion right from the very beginning, the very day that he rose from the dead. These guys started putting out a counter story. And the devil's been doing that ever since to this very day. And out there in this world today, there are thousands, literally, thousands of brands just of Christianity. Don't worry about the others, all the other Buddhists and Muslims and so on and so on, Hindus and all the rest, just Christianity alone. Thousands of versions of Christianity, and not one of them agree. And that's the devil's greatest weapon, is it? Confusion. He's blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine through unto them. So when we go out there, we're going to have to uh, uh, take some particular tack or an approach to, to get through to these people, and that's what we do, isn't it? We become all things to all men, we might by all means save some of them. We might get through there somehow. We might get the message across that they might understand what it is that God has done for them, that the enemy is vanquished and that the spoil of the camp is waiting there for them. Let's go over to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 to finish, verse 4. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Praise the Lord. We are not in darkness. We have seen the truth. The glorious light of the gospel has shined into our lives, and we've seen what the Lord has promised unto his people. He's made it known unto us by his Spirit, the Scriptures tell us. So praise the Lord. We understand his plan and his purpose. We see where he has prepared all things for those that love him. And so we are not in darkness any longer. We've already come out of the darkness and we've entered into the light so that now we go forth and we sound the warning, don't we? We are the watchmen. We are those who have been commissioned to go forth as the ambassadors and representatives to sound the alarm. We've heard the word of God at his mouth, quite literally. Jesus Christ said, the words which I speak, I don't speak of myself, but he who sent me, he told me what I should say. And so we have heard the word of God at the mouth of Jesus Christ, and it's recorded here for us today. So we know, and we are aware, he says, you are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We're not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others. I trust there's nobody sleeping here today, are there? Nobody nodded off. I know it's been a little while, but praise the Lord. Nobody's sleeping today, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, hope of salvation. Praise the Lord. We've got to arm ourselves with the word of God, don't we? This breastplate of faith is interesting. Faith is based in knowledge, isn't it? Over in Romans we read that faith comes by hearing the word of God. You know, for each and every one of us, that first spark of faith came by hearing the Word of God, whether it was somebody preaching the Word of God or 
In my case, it was a testimony, but it sparked something inside of us. The Bible tells us that even that faith that we have to, to receive the Holy Spirit, to be saved in the beginning, comes from God. But praise the Lord, we build on that, don't we? As we hear the Word of God, as we uh, understand His promises, as we grow day by day, we take on that shield of faith, the breastplate of faith which protects us and is based in knowledge. We know our calling. We know that which God has prepared for us. We know that he's coming again, and we know the job that we've got to do. There is power in knowledge. There is fear in not knowing something, isn't there? There was fear in the city because they didn't know the facts. They didn't understand that the enemy had already been vanquished. There's fear in the world because they don't know what it's like to take the next step, to cross over, if you like, out of the darkness and into the light. But we know, and our faith is based in that knowledge, and that knowledge makes us strong in the Lord. And so praise the Lord, he says there, um, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Praise the Lord. And wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. So praise the Lord. We comfort one another today. Whether we wake or whether we sleep, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are in his hands and our lives are hid together with him. And when he appears, then we shall appear with him in glory. All the people say, Amen.